Coming up in this podcast, election wash-up, FMG Compo, Clough Claims, International Women's Day, Indigenous Business, Contractors and Infrastructure. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News, with Mark Pownall and Mark Beyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly Mark My Words podcast. And welcome Mark Beyer. First up, Mark, uh, with the election behind us, it's probably worth recapping on the outcome and some of the tidbits from this week. Yeah, look, I thought the overarching theme from the past week was the calm that has descended over the world of politics. Yeah. After all the hurly-burly of the election campaign and all the, you know, in-your-face campaigning, uh, it was just sort of a, a, a peaceful transition. But is it just uh, politics? I mean, it, business goes quiet too, right? It's like it's not been the most active week. Do you think everybody goes, oh, phew, thank goodness that's over? Yeah, and those weeks are good to have occasionally. <laughs> yes. uh, but look, uh, the upshot was, as we know, uh, a big swing uh, that uh, has put Labor into power. Uh, we're still waiting to see whether they can govern in their own right or whether they're still going to rely on support from the crossbench in the lower house. Either way, Labor is well ahead of the coalition. Uh, the other big swing, of course, was to the, the independents, uh, the teal independents and the greens as well. And Kate Cheney in the seat of Curtin was one of the beneficiaries of that swing. Yep. So yeah, and she only just, uh, well, Celia Hammond only just conceded yesterday being Friday. Yep. No, sorry, Th- Thursday. Thursday. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so look, for WA, the upshot, 15 seats in the House of Reps. Labor now has nine of them. The Liberals, just five and one independent. So that's just a massive swing over the past decade or so. Uh, WA was always a, a liberal stronghold. Yeah. Um, four seats that changed hands. Pierce, Swan, and Hasluck were always seen as uh, fairly likely Labor wins. The really big surprise was Ben Morton losing his spot in Tangney. Tangney yeah. Um, on this, you know, this the swing in WA was much larger than just about any other state. Well, it was more than ten percent, I think. It was, yeah. And look, Ben Morton was. Uh, Close to Scott Morrison, uh, he had a junior ministry position, but certainly seen as someone who had a, a big future yeah. in the Liberal Party in Canberra. Yeah, well, I think that's part of the problem, isn't it? Two, for the Liberals in WA, two very important people who, you know, well, I think Celia Hammond was a potential sort of education minister or something like that. And obviously Ben Morton had potential in that, you know, that bigger kind of special uh, ministry kind of role. Uh, and that that just you know takes them out. They don't have a year, you know, a, 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 a time in opposition to develop their skills. They're gone, and the next people have to come in. Yep. And look, and the the opposition uh, team is looking what's well, thin in numbers, but also they've lost some really good people, not just yep. in WA but elsewhere. Absolutely. So they'll be up against it. Yeah. Josh uh, Frydenberg being one of those as well. The the most notable one. Yeah. yeah. He was, of course, the other. Um, or a potential leader, uh, but now Peter Dutton, uh, it's not formalised yet, but looks set to become leader of the Liberals in Canberra. Yeah. Uh, and more importantly, Mark, I mean, I, I guess, you know, now that you've got a clear winner and, and you know, I, I think what is a little bit different with this election and perhaps because of the last one, I don't think business was prepared to, you know, 
be all prepared for one type of government or the other because you just really didn't know what was going to happen, even though you expected it to change. So what are we thinking, you know, policy-wise now, if you're in business, what are the sort of things you'd be uh, expecting? What changes or differences or what, you know, what do you think? Yep. Well, look, I think there were three things that, that stood out for me in, in terms of what has been declared and maybe some other things that haven't been declared. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the number one thing that Anthony Albanese highlighted in his acceptance speech was uh, Indigenous recognition and, and acknowledging the Uluru Statement mm. and giving a, a voice to Indigenous people. So that will lead up to a, a referendum. Yep. Um, now, all remains to be seen whether that's a symbolic gesture or whether it's a substantive change uh, yep. but that's certainly top of his agenda and 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 we can't really anticipate any impact on business from that can we oh, i don't think so no, no. Uh, the second one uh, a lot of talk around environment um, and taking more action there yeah um, but of course adam bant from the greens has come out very quickly and said how disappointed he is with labor's uh, relatively cautious approach in that regard um, so there's going to be lots of uh, you know, I think delicate negotiations there hmm. for, for Labor to walk that line of being a bit more taking a bit more action on environment uh, but not doing too much to damage business yes and we've got a great case study here in Western Australia with the Scarborough gas project uh, that Woodside is proceeding with um, and certainly very strongly supported by the state government, and mm. I would expect would continue to have support from a federal Labor government. Yeah, you would think so. No, it is. It's fascinating uh, already, you know, that... I mean, it was already on the uh, uh, on the agenda as a as a subject for the for for the uh, the activist side of the environmental movement, but it's it's suddenly become a more mainstream issue, and you know, and I guess here you've got a Labor premier who's going to have to, you know, defend that position and want it to happen, and so suddenly, you know, in in this atmosphere and from that election, it's just going to be interesting to watch the positioning. Mm, very much so. Uh, and then the third one, and this is. Perhaps you know, where Mark McGowan was putting this on the agenda, but you know, relations with China, you know, our biggest trading partner. Yeah. So certainly, uh, Labor will be winding down the rhetoric. You know, the kind of things that Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton, in particular, had been talking about about the strategic threat from China. Yeah. Um, you know, we can't ignore that as a country, uh, but they're also our biggest trading partner. So I think there'll be a a, a softer, more diplomatic tone to the way Labor approaches that. Yeah. And notable, of course, that the Chinese Premier actually congratulated Anthony Albanese after not talking to Scott Morrison or ministers in his government for a long time now. Yeah, but at the same time, we've got the Chinese Foreign Minister travelling all the way around the uh, Pacific, uh, you know, trying to coax governments, no doubt, into becoming more China-friendly. And at the same time, you've got our new Foreign Minister, Penny Wong, pretty much doing the same thing. Yeah. So it's going to be fascinating. Different, that, a different type of arm wrestle. Yes. And that highlights you know, the, the strategic challenge um, and, and the more um, assertive um, strategic posture that China has these days. Yeah. No, and absolutely. All right. Well, interesting times. And uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see if, uh, you know, how business reacts to all these things over time. Uh, now, uh, Native title claims against Fortescue Metals Group have been back in the news. Yeah, so one of the really interesting developments has been the ongoing dispute between Fortescue and the Yinjibandi people. 
Uh, now, a lot of Fortescue's mining activity happens on Yinjabandi land. Uh, they do not have a formal land use agreement with the Yinjabandi people, um, and it's been a sore point for a long time. This is the matter that's gone all the way to the High Court, where the Yinjabandi have managed to establish that they have exclusive uh, native title um, over their lands. That's going to lead to, uh, or gives them the basis for, a compensation claim against Fortescue, mm-hmm. speculated hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, given the, the value of the iron ore that's been mined and sold from there. Yeah. Now, these things take an awfully long time. It was back in 2017 when the Injibandi uh, Aboriginal Corporation first had a ruling in the federal court um, that went, then went to the full bench, then went to the high court. Now they've gone back to the federal court for this process to formalise their claim. One really fascinating aspect to this is that when you, any party that gets a native title compensation claim, it's the government that's responsible in the first instance. Right. In this case, the state, state government. State government, right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. In this case, the state government using, I think, Section 25A of the Mining Act, is planning to pass on that liability to Fortescue Mm. because they hold the mining tenements. Now, I'm getting signals that we are likely to have another long-running legal dispute as to who, in fact, bears that liability. It's like the hot potato. Yes. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, the Injibandi will are expected to formalise their compensation claim over the next few months. Yeah. Um, but even if once that gets formalised, who pays the bill? Mm. So, I mean, I, I guess simplifying it for people like myself, is this a situation where Fortescue says, well, I pay you royalties. I pay to mine the land. You've given me permission to mine the land. I've mined the land. I don't have an agreement with the native title holders. So, therefore, I've given you money they're owed money you give it to them and I assume then that if you're a state government you wouldn't give approval to anybody to mine unless they had an agreement with the native title holders is that is that the possible outcome of all this uh, look that could be an argument that's raised in the discussions right um, you know I, it, I mean it, I'm just curious yeah. as to, is that the, is that the kind of or is it too early to tell at this stage? well it's, it's certainly too early to tell right. um, I mean Fortescue's response so far is uh, well we're not a party to the federal court action. Yeah. They certainly oppose the Injibandi claim to have exclusive title over the land. Yeah. Um, but now that it's gone back to the federal court, they're saying, oh, well, that's between the Injibandi people and the government. Yeah. Nothing okay. to do with us. <laughs> um, right. But they will be brought into it, and there will be this, this resolution of, of a matter that we don't normally see. No. And certainly of this scale. Yeah. Uh, and, and because normally, notwithstanding some of the issues that, even recent issues that major mining companies have had with native title holders, normally the large companies don't want to get this far down the track, do they? They want to kind of settle that stuff and get it off the table. I mean, maybe different in the 90s and earlier, but certainly in the last couple of decades, th- this stuff is usually preferred to be kept out of the courts and, uh, you know, sorted behind closed doors. I mean, Fortescue has made the point that they've got seven... Uh, land use agreements with other um, Aboriginal groups up in the Pilbara. And they said that they're open to put in place something similar with the Yinjibandi people. Yeah. Uh, 
but a couple of issues there. The agreements they've got in place, and in fact, we're going to discuss this in in another topic this morning. Yep. Fortescue favours will give you jobs, will give you contracting opportunities, will give you some financial benefits, uh, but as a company, we don't favour big sort of writing out big checks. Um, yeah, yeah. There's a there's sort of a moral argument there, but there's also the legal argument. You know, the Yinjabandi have been established yep. as holding title over that land. It's their land. So therefore, they're entitled to compensation. Yep. That's the argument here. Yep. Um, and of course, there's um, a lot of history here of disputes between the Yinjabandi people and Fortescue. Yep, no, so there's going right back a decade or more. Yes. And you've covered a lot of that, Mark, so I know you know the detail. All right. Um, now, Mark, uh, changing subject slightly, actually, um, but maybe big legal issue in the resources sector. Uh, Clough's big legal issue is with Rio Tinto, and it's back in the courts. Yeah, look, this is another example of, uh, I guess, two things. Uh, one, the way in which large projects often end up with legal disputes between the part of the contractor and the principal, uh, and second, how long legal disputes can take to resolve themselves. Uh, now, in this case, Clough and um, Coleman Rail, which is owned by the, the Spanish contracting giant Asiona, they won a contract worth about $140 million to build a rail embankment as part of the Goodadari iron ore mine development. Uh, now, Clough and Coleman Rail have said they were misled there were significant changes to the scope of the works. Uh, the costs skyrocketed. They've also alleged that there was uh, they weren't fully informed about uh, exposure to asbestos um, in the area in which they were working. So now they're chasing Rio or its subsidiary Hammersley Iron for a big termination payment and damages. This uh, first came to light earlier this year. The parties were back in court and it was a fascinating discussion about whether or not Rio was responding um, in an expeditious manner to the claim that had been put before them. Yep. Now, of course, these statements of claim, in this case, I think they said more than 500 pages. So voluminous detail going right down into the detail of the contracts, and often these things end up, you know, there's a discovery process and there's emails and text messages and all sorts of things that get discovered. Uh, the upshot is uh, Justice Gail Archer has given Rio two weeks to come back and if there are any uh, issues that they have uh, with the statement of claim, they've got now got two weeks to come back to the court. Hmm. Um, but uh, certainly the counsel for Clough and Common Rail were saying to Rio, come on. Get a move on here. You've yeah. had plenty of time to respond to this. Yeah, there you go. So, I mean, Mark, it's not unusual, is it, these days in uh, in contracts like this to, for the men to end up in dispute? No, no. Look, and uh, particularly in the resources sector, you know, there's this, the scale of these projects and then the complexity of them. Mm. Um, now, unfortunately, uh, you know, the, the amount of money that gets chewed up in pursuing these matters through the courts um, and the amount of time. You know, that's a bit that often gets overlooked here. Yeah. You know, people that should be working on the next project 
and helping to build a business are getting called into meetings with lawyers um, and even appearing in court to try and resolve an historical dispute. Yeah. And I think in many cases, at the end of it all, when people reflect back and they say, well, maybe we should have sat down and worked a bit harder early on to negotiate an outcome here. Yeah, I mean, that's easier said than done sometimes, I think. And, and I think sometimes it doesn't matter one side or the other might think, well, you know, legal, just the threat of legal action is enough to give them some leverage. And, uh, you know, because, well, we can, we can afford it or we can, you know, I don't know. Um, look, it did actually remind me that uh, a week or so ago we, we did a piece on uh, Clough reacting to some talk around, uh, well, media speculation that they owed, you know, 300 million and they had bankers trying to pull, trying to, you know, renegotiate debt, at which point, you know, well, I spoke to them about it and they said, no, there's, there isn't a debt. They've got no debt. I just, I'm just curious as to whether this all got mixed up in the same thing, you know, lost in a, in that kind of conversation. Uh, I don't know, Mark. Have you got any thoughts on that at all? Or, well, it, it certainly should not have got mixed up. Mm. You know, two very separate things here. Yeah. Um, and look, you know, Clough's a very large. You know, been going for many, many years, yes. and got a strong parent in South Africa, Marianne Roberts. Um, yeah. And I, I know that the feedback we got uh, when those rumours were around was. No, things are all good. Yeah. Nothing to worry about. Yeah, and I think part of that speculation was, oh, there's rumours of some big engineering firm getting in, or construction and engineering firm getting in trouble, and, oh, a previous one that got in trouble, uh, ProBuild, was owned by South Africans. Therefore, it must be Clough. That's what some of the suggestion was. But anyway, I was just curious as to whether there was any connection there, but probably not. Uh, Mark, we had a, uh, a major event this week to celebrate International Women's Day, um, and you were you were there. What what came out of it? Yep, um, and worth highlighting, I suppose. International Women's Day, of course, was back in March mm. when the event was originally scheduled. Oh, yeah, right, okay. but uh, the dreaded COVID forced us to postpone. Yeah, the event. I was okay. <laughs> I hadn't made that connection because I was thinking, didn't we just have it? Yes, okay, yes. got it. Um, Fantastic event down at the convention centre. We had about 750 people attending. Uh, we had a keynote address from Diane Smith-Gander, prominent company director and well-known advocate in this area, followed by a panel discussion. I found it really interesting, and there was a, just a very broad suite of issues that were canvassed there. Yep. Uh, I guess a, th a real theme for Diane Smith-Gander was uh, two things. One the gender pay gap and the fact that in Western Australia in particular has a very wide gender pay gap um, and in fact if it's getting wider um, in recent times. So she certainly saw that as something that needs more action. And then she also talked about look, number one issue for business is getting the people they need, the labour shortage. And she said we've got all these well-qualified, experienced women who are at home who would love to get back into the workforce but because of, A, the high cost and limited availability of childcare, and B, I guess, inflexible traditional employment structures, they can't get back into the workforce. Yeah. So she called for action on both those fronts. Um, yeah, childcare more available and employers to be more flexible so that women can come back in, help to deal with these labour shortages 
add their skills and expertise, boost productivity, etc. Lots of studies in this space. Yeah, pretty so, fascinating actually when you think just on the childcare side, but then you've got, you know, the whole childcare industry, it's got its own issues. Um, you know, it's, it's actually hard to get planning permission to get them in and then you've got, it's expensive to run them. You've got governments telling them, you know, you now have to, well, I know it hasn't come into force yet, but you've got to have a registered nurse and things like that, you know, uh, and you go, well, there's not enough nurses for the health sector, let alone to put them into childcare. So, you know, there's often a lot of conflict around what's needed and actually being able to deliver it. No, no, you're right. And, um, you know, and more generally, finding staff to work in the childcare centres. Yeah, yeah, just broadly, let alone yeah. specialists. Yeah. yeah. Um, but look, I think um, that, that's certainly sort of a long-term issue. There's more discussion around that. And, you know, one thing that Labor's made all sorts of supportive noises out of Canberra. Yes. And we'll see what action follows up. Yeah. Another one that came up was the topic of quotas and whether that can be used, whether it's in the boardroom or in a political party. Uh, Diane Smith-Gander is certainly supportive of that. And one of the other speakers on the panel was Mia Davies, leader of the National Party and leader of the opposition here in WA. Now, both of those women talked about the fact that earlier in their lives, they were very much of the view that we're in a country where anyone who wants to get ahead can get ahead. But they've both come around to the view that that's not always the case, that there are all sorts of biases against women, mm. and both were advocating for quotas. Um, and you know, Mia Davies was referring back to the federal election and the very strong support. You know, the Teal Independents were, I think, universally women. They were. Um, so that's you know, a real shift in the composition of federal parliament, but it's not through one of the major parties, it's through being independent. No, although ironically and in this state for example they knocked off women parliamentarians anyway that is true yes <laughs> not not exclusively across the nation i'll add but yep. you know but it was certainly the case locally yeah um look some of the other panelists um carl titchmarch who works for clough um, one of their senior people he talked about some of the changes they're making in their operations and there was one little example that he raised he went up to one of their project sites in the pilbara he said 28% of the workers up there were women. And he was just remarking on how different that is from what you would have seen yeah. even just a decade ago. Yeah, I was going to say, just a decade ago. And he said it had a really profound impact on the way the team operated, on the, the, the culture of that uh, project team, um, the way people interacted with each other, the way they communicated, the way they worked together. Um, did he yeah. did he give any more about that? You know, what did he is he more oh, look, I mean, are we sort of guessing, oh yeah, I mean I can make my guesses as to what that means, but did he sort of spell uh, it he, out? He didn't sort of I guess drill down into that sort of uh, granular detail, but you know, I can imagine uh, you know, the way you, you put a group of women in with um, a larger group of men and it, it changes the tone of the room. Yeah. Um, I think generally, you know, people are more respectful towards each other, more considerate. Um, even the language that people use tends to change. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was a good example. Uh, Richard Cohen from Rio Tinto was on the panel. He was asked about the inquiry into sexual abuse in the mining industry, um, acknowledged that's a really big challenge for the sector, that everyone's been learning a lot. And he talked about things that they're doing, You know, for instance, improving the camps, improving lighting. Um, but he said, fundamentally, though, 
every individual has to look at what they can do. And this was a point that Diane Smith-Gander left the audience with. You know, each person in the audience this morning, what can you do mm. to change the way your workplace operates and to help women and others you know, pursue opportunities in the workplace? So I thought that was sort of a, a, a telling thought to leave people with. Yeah. Um, and then finally, uh, Kath Hart, uh, newly installed chief executive at REWA, was on the panel. Uh, a couple of things she talked about. One, the importance of parental leave and that it's for not just women, but men as well. Uh, and she said one of the, the pitfalls, women go back into the workforce on a part-time basis, but end up working full-time anyway. Yeah, you know, They're officially a three-day-a-week or a four-day-a-week, yeah. uh, but you get dragged into doing a lot more than that. Yeah, well, that's always the risk uh, with any part-time role, uh, balancing that, isn't it? And... and um and, you know, making sure. But then again, you know, there's plenty of people working full time who work 60 hours a week and get paid 40. So, you know, it's <laughs> it's not exclusively a part timers issue. Um, and also, you know, I guess it's also that, it, you know, and look, I've got familiarity with this through my own uh, family is, you know, a part timer can be ending up working four or five days a week where they work from 9.30 to 3.30 and they do the pickups with the kids and all that sort of stuff. And, and that can be extremely challenging, you know, finishing off and getting going. And you don't get any of that uh, that time where you spend with your colleagues, you know, lunchtime or after work or in the morning or going out and have coffee. You don't have the luxury for that, for the kind of networking that it takes sometimes to build your career. Um, now, uh, Mark, we've had a couple of big features in the magazine, which are out next week. Firstly, you had a look at Indigenous business, which you kind of alluded to previously. Yeah, and look, um, a lot of positives in this area. Uh, this is something that, um, as I say, we've been following this for a long time, and the scale of Indigenous business in Western Australia has got to a level that I've not seen before. Mm, okay. And a lot of it's being driven by the big guy in ore miners up in the Pilbara. Yep. Led by Fortescue Metals Group. Yeah, funny that. Um, so you know, it, it reflects their approach. They they they've got issues with paying big cash royalties, uh, but they're very proactive in creating jobs and business opportunities. Yeah. So last financial year, Fortescue spent four hundred and thirty million dollars uh, with a whole range of Indigenous-owned businesses. That's put them well ahead of Rio and BHP. But both of those organisations have really stepped up their efforts in the past year or so. Yep. And they've set some very ambitious goals for expanding the amount of business um, or the amount of procurement they have with Indigenous businesses. Yep. Um, on top of that, the WA government's got their Aboriginal procurement program. Um, it's smaller in scale than the big miners. Um, and in fact, dropped off in dollar value last financial year, uh, but still very substantial, um, yeah. what, $136 million. And then if you add to that one Woodside, they're a lot smaller, but still still substantial. They spend about $50 million with Aboriginal businesses. Just putting those five together, Fortescue, Rio, BHP, WA Government and Woodside, you get about a billion dollars that's going into Aboriginal businesses just in the past financial year. Yeah, got it. And will be going up substantially in future years. 
Yep. And I also spoke to organisations, um, Mineral Resources Limited and Northern Star Resources, coming off a pretty low base, but they're seeing a real need to get serious in this area. Yeah, right. And they're wanting to engage a lot more. And Mark, are we seeing, you know, like some of the uh, Indigenous businesses you're talking about, do you see those names as being, you know, like now names that you see them getting work beyond, you know, working for one mining company? Do you see sustainability in it or is it just, you know, I'm just curious. Uh, Look, that's a word that came up a lot in my discussions with these groups because historically a lot of them have just gone project to project yeah. Um, and it hasn't been, uh, they haven't had the five-year contracts, yeah. um, but they're starting to get that now. And, and historically, too, they did a lot of the lower-level contract, you know, build some roads, maintaining grounds, that sort of stuff. Are they getting into those deeper contracts, the mining side of it? In a small way. It's right. still overwhelmingly civil earthworks, yep. as well as things like grounds maintenance, uh, but also some... So, number one on our list of Indigenous businesses is Warrigal, set up by Amanda Healy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've got about 700 people on their books now. Gosh, um, and they're in sort of the mechanical maintenance side. Yeah, right. So they're working up particularly on the Fortescue sites. Uh, they've got a five-year contract worth about 350 mil. Right. And that gives people the basis to go and buy some more equipment, put people on, on, the, on the payroll. Yep. Um, so that's really good. Um, Kerry Mining, number yeah. two. We've spoken to Daniel well, Tucker in the past. Perennial, I'm sure... I think uh, he was on the cover of Business News nearly 20 years ago when we started talking about this subject. Yep, yep. And the fact that they're still going and going well, that's a great story. Um, Eastern Gurama, I caught up with them. Uh, They're doing doing well. And they're they're going from about 30 mil turnover in prior years. It'll be about 60 mil this year, and they're budgeting for 90 next year. So, you know, good story. Mm. Um, another one, Cunderline Resources. Uh, they're smaller, but they're going from about 10 mil annual revenue up to 30 mil. And one of the great stories about Cunderline is that they're Aboriginal owned, but they've also got a very high proportion of Aboriginal staff. Um, in their case, they're quoting about 85%. Yeah. Because so, often when you scratch the surface, you discover that a lot of um, quote unquote Indigenous businesses only have 15, 20% Indigenous workforce. Yeah, of course. Yeah, right. um, so it's not quite as impressive as might first appear to be the case. And this ties into the, the issue that always comes up when I'm discussing this topic of, uh, quote, black cladding. So it, you know, it's the joint venture with a major contractor that purports to be an Indigenous joint venture uh, but the reality is often different. Yeah, got it. Um, and that's still raised as a concern for many people in the sector. Hmm. Okay, well, you know, it sounds like a good deep dive, Mark, so yeah. I look forward to reading and, that and in detail. Sorry, and briefly on that oh, yeah. theme again, uh, we've also done a bit of a deep dive into Indigenous employment. Uh, now, Mindaroo Foundation, um, another, of course, backed by Andrew Forrest, so yep. this is perhaps reflective of... Andrew Forrest's sort of pervasive influence in WA. Uh, but through his Mindaroo Foundation, uh, one of their initiatives is Generation One. Sure, yeah. Uh, led by Shelley Cable, um, very impressive uh, young woman. Yep. And they've done a, a really detailed look at the challenges that businesses face in taking on more Aboriginal workers. 
Um, and so it's just a, a really instructive guide. So I've got a, a detailed article on that one as well. Okay, brilliant. Okay, like I said, I look forward to reading it. Uh, and then finally, uh, there's a special report on contractors and infrastructure. Yep. And look, um, once again, you know, with themes that keep on recurring, uh, there's a boom in infrastructure, uh, but there's also businesses going bust. Yeah. And Matt McKenzie in this feature has covered off on both of them. Um, so he's looked at, uh, in particular, the Metronet projects that are uh, a big part of the WA government's program and all the work that's coming out of that. He had a good catch up with John Giorgio uh, from Giorgio Group. You know, they're one of the, they're a, a major mid-tier contractor. And, and one of the recurring issues is whether or not pack, whether or not projects get packaged up in a way that those mid-tier players get a real crack at the work, yep. or whether it's just left to the big guys. Um, and I think in this case, you know, the state government, I think, has done a pretty good job of giving the mid-tier contractors a fair chance. Right. I and think course, initially they didn't, right? Yes. So they, they've repackaged again, is that right? Yeah. So, there yeah. Are, so, so the work gets carved up yeah. into a few smaller, smaller packages. Smaller parcels that, you, that, that uh, yeah, some companies can compete for. And of course, at the moment, you need everyone you can to be on the case. And Matt's also had a bit of a look at uh, efforts to get more women involved in con- in the civil construction sector in particular. Mm. Um, so making um, some reforms of the apprenticeship system there. Um, it's a nice piece there. But also had a bit of a look at um, some of the uh, businesses that have got into financial difficulty and steps that have been made to uh, rescue them. And WBHO, part of ProBuild, was yep. the prime example. Got it. All right, I'll look forward to that. And Mark, before I let you go, the, it looks like a very colourful cover there. Who's on the cover? Yep, no, that's Shelley Cable oh, right, from okay. Generation One. Got it. All right. All right. Well, that's uh, all part of that read. Fantastic. All right. Thanks, Mark. Uh, hydrogen, ammonia, lithium, natural gas, they're all part of the discussion about WA's energy future. But there's enormous challenge ahead. Uh, join our expert lineup for lunch on June 24 at the Convention Centre as they discuss whether Western Australia can become a world leader in the new global clean energy industry and what it'll take to get there. Look forward to you joining us. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Powell and Mark Bayer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts. And to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud.